Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 Podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 50 of the Spycraft 101 Podcast. With me right now is Dr. George Bearfield, a writer, academic, and engineer. He works in senior roles in the United Kingdom railway industry and is a visiting professor of railroad safety at the University of Huddersfield in Northern England. George published his first book titled Foursquare, The Last Parachutist, last year, and it was formally launched in April at the Czech Embassy in London. It tells the story of covert operations and espionage activities in Czechoslovakia during World War II. I recently finished the book and knew it was a story that deserved to be shared far and wide, so I got in touch with him immediately about coming on the podcast for an interview. But before we get into this discussion, I want to ask you, the listener, a question. Do you ever look around and wonder if anyone is listening in? If you're subscribed to this podcast, then the answer is probably yes. But how do you protect yourself from being overheard when that's the last thing that you want? How do you keep your conversations between you and the person in front of you and no one else? The answer is the ultrasonic speech protection jammers from tinytransmitters.com. When switched on, these jammers can effectively disable any microphones nearby. Likewise, if you're part of an agency or organization with unique needs, you can trust Tiny Transmitters to meet those needs with customized solutions designed to your specifications. Tiny Transmitters can embed their newest ultra-small transmitters in devices such as power strips, key fobs, cigarette packs, picture frames, and even in the walls of a cardboard box. Almost anything you can imagine, and probably a lot of things you haven't until now. Every order from Tiny Transmitters ships free anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. What's more, you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to get 20% off your order. Go check it out now at tinytransmitters.com. That's tinytxs.com. George, thank you for making time to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks, Justin, for having me on. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I'm glad we could do this. George, most of your previous published work, as far as I can tell, is like journal articles related to engineering, that sort of thing. So writing a book about World War II history appears to be a, a pretty significant diversion for you. But I know that you also have a like a tremendous personal connection to this story. So can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, I mean, I guess I have an eclectic range of interests. So you probably haven't picked up, but I'm a long-term uh, boxing journalist as well. So a weird mix of interests, I guess. But um, mm. the link from academia, I think, is the, the book, as you say, it's what the link between my academic background and the book is really this has been a long-term uh, research project. So as I'll go on to talk about, it's about basically uncovering the story of my grandfather, who was, you know, he's from Czechoslovakia, born in 1914 in Barnov in Moravia. But I came to know him at the end of his life when he was living in England, where, where I, I grew up. There was always a question mark, which was, why is he here? And why is he not in Czechoslovakia? And what's the story? And so for me, it was a, the skills I had and in research have really helped me to gather together various information sources together with the 
little bits of information that he provided to piece it all together. And so, the, as I say, my research skills were really helpful in, in, in doing that. Yeah, I'm glad that you say that because that was one of the most interesting things about the book to me. And, you know, as part of this podcast, I've read dozens of books, history books over the past couple of years. And you took a really unique approach to writing this book. And it's like an, a narrative of your journey with your grandfather, which I thought was really interesting as you get him to open up a little bit more over time as the story unfolds. So the reader, it's kind of like we're discovering the story right alongside of you. So that's something that I really enjoyed. And I just want to ask you, what is it like to go on that journey? Because I haven't you know, been through something similar with my own family. What's it like to discover this enormous role that your grandfather played in one of the pivotal events of the 20th century? I mean, it was it was interesting because, as I say, there was always this mystery as to my grandfather's story. And he was a good spy because <laughs> he, he gave very little away. But I was determined to uncover the information. So for me to be able to do that, so the, the story is essentially he played a role in the Czechoslovak military intelligence based mostly in the UK during the war, leading towards his own mission at the end of the war. His cousin, who he escaped from Czechoslovakia with at the start of the war, is famously one of the um, seven Czechoslovak parachutists who was killed in in Prague in the aftermath of the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. So that's a very famous story, and I, I, I knew a little bit about that story, and there's been a lot written about it, so that gave me some information. But in order to piece together my granddad's story, what I really needed to know was the overarching political context and the, the rationale for these missions and what it was all about actually then the the writing process was very much just replicating the process I went through myself, which was understand the bigger political context, understand um, the specific, you know, what's available in terms of the information about the missions that happened, understand the the, the sort of anecdotes and little things I understood from my grandfather. And when I understood all those three things, it all kind of linked together. And so really what I decided to do as the book was exactly that, to take people on that journey and to actually have various strands of the story. Because what that gives you actually in the end is a far more complete picture as to why, you know, the story of, of Anthropoid and the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich is often presented as a sort of classic daring do war story. But nobody really ever explained why the stakes were so high. Why was it that these men were in such a, a ridiculously dangerous and important situation? And to understand that, you really need to understand the political context that sits over the top. And then I guess the personal narrative for me was about taking, you know, these events were now, you know, 80 years ago. Um, but for me, they were very real because of the family connection that I had. And I wanted people to feel that. I wanted people. So in describing my own journey, I was wanting to bring some tangibility and some emotion and some real first-hand experience to lift the story from the sort of pages of a, you know, of dusty old textbooks into a real human story, which is exactly what it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, your book is such a great blend of the, the big picture and the small picture in a way, because you tell your grandfather's role and, you know, he's not a very well-known person outside of your book and outside of your family, but in the context of the total impact of the war on Czechoslovakia, the government in exile, you know, all the, the people that were refugees and exiles and, and the people that stayed behind. And, you know, I, I really felt like I had a very good understanding of what happened there after I finished your book in the big picture and in the small picture. Yeah. And for me, it was, again, a tribute to my grandfather, because as, as you all know, having read the book, there are reasons why he isn't a well-known figure, basically because at the end of the war, if he'd been much more public about what he'd done, he probably would have been killed. So he had to keep quiet. And it was the it was the communists and the Soviet Union who were actively threatening his life in the 1950s and onwards. So 
you know, he deliberately kept a low profile. And so the things that he and others like him did, at great personal sacrifice, huge bravery, were never really fully recognized. And so really the book, you say, well, you know, what kept me going through doing all the research was really a, a, a desire to to have the book as a tribute to him and, and to the many other men and women like him. Yeah, absolutely. He had really good reasons to keep quiet about the role that he played during the war. But how did you go about getting him to open up about it after so many years? Because it seems like nobody else in the family, except for maybe your grandmother, knew very much about what he'd done. So what was it that you or what was the approach that you took or how did you kind of, you know, unlock the secrets of what he had done so many years before? Well, there's a little anecdote in the book, which might resonate with American um, listeners, was I used to like I used to love chatting to my grandfather because he was full of anecdotes and stories and he was a very intelligent engaged politically aware person and so I just used to go and listen to lots of his stories and although he never spoke about the specifics of what he did in the war I remembered all those stories and that you'll see in the book that that I, I'm able to weave some of those in because of the the way I once I understood the full story I could understand how they fit fitted in and there was one particular time it was in the 90s I mentioned it in the book where we were watching, I think it was it was at the time of the troubles in, in former Yugoslavia, and Madeleine Albright was on the news, and she was, you know, talking from some UN meeting. And my grandfather, just sort of as an aside, said, oh, I remember her when she was a little girl. <laughs> and I was completely hmm. dumbfounded. I was like, what, what, what do you mean? And it turned out that he was he worked with her father in the Czechoslovak government at the end of the war. And it was things like that that just piqued my interest. I thought, I, I somehow got it into my head that it was my destiny at some point to to tell his story for him. And so as he got towards the end of his life, I, I, because the story of his cousin's death was so famous and, you know, there've been multiple films made, made about it, including m- most recently the film Anthropoid, which is, uh, you know, was a, a Hollywood movie uh, because his cousin's story was, and the story of the assassination of Reinhard Hardwick was so well known. I was able to research stuff without him knowing. And then I'd, I followed the thread of that. And that meant that as he was getting, older in his life and perhaps a little bit less guarded and a bit more willing to open up, I was actually able to ask some intelligent questions. Because if if I just asked the questions like, well, what did you do in the war, Granddad? He would just come up with a flippant answer or, you know, shrug his shoulders and move on, you know. But, but when you ask specific questions that show you've got a genuine interest and a degree of insight, well, I, I found that he actually then gave me a, an equivalent response. Hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah, it, it took a long time to get there, I guess. But all that research that you were doing ahead of time must have really paid off and, and brought the two of you together a little bit closer as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, it was, it, uh, yeah, it was certainly, it's, I mean, I think, uh, to be honest, you know, I, I don't think anybody, I mean, it's, as I say, it's my first book other than my PhD thesis, but I don't think you ever feel that you've, a book has, you've fully done justice to a, the story in your head. But I think given the amount of time I spent on it, the book is quite close to what I wanted it to be. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I know that. I, I know that feeling. I've written one, self-published as well, and it certainly still feels like a work in progress, even after going up for sale. So I, I do get that. And your story is a lot more in depth and took you a lot longer, I think, as well. So I, I know that. Speaking of that, you know, this was this was years of effort on your part, and you know, unfortunately, your grandfather passed away before you had finished the book. So how did that affect your ability to tell this entire story? Well, you, I mean, there's part of me, and I've managed to speak to my grandfather and some of his colleagues as well, which is covered in the book towards the end. And some of the book is in a, a form of interviews and, and discussions, you know, actual descriptions of, of conversations I had with some of his colleagues. I, I sometimes feel like I could beat myself up for not speaking to people earlier. 
But at the same time, I feel a bit proud that I actually did manage to speak to, to half a dozen people before they mm. they passed away. I mean, I think the in terms of keeping me going, the fact that my grandfather died, to be honest, I never would have got much more information out of him than I did. <laughs> but actually, the fact that it took me, you know, he died in the year 2000 and the book only came out in 2020. And to be honest, the research and the, you know, and I've got you know, an active career. So haven't been able to, at least until the last couple of years, wasn't able to spend a significant amount of time on it. But in in a way, it, it, it kind of kept him alive for me. You know, it kept a personal relationship with him. And even to the point where, you know, I'll mention it in the book where I was looking at the um, public records office in West London and, and found a little signature of his in, a, in an old, dusty, old file, declassified intelligence file. And and it was like a, it was genuinely like a, I was like a connection across 20, you know, across well, in that case, sort of 70 years, you know, it felt like that message was, you know, seeing his handwriting there in this dusty old file, almost just for a fleeting second, brought him back to life. Hmm. Yeah, that's poignant. That's wonderful, honestly. So let's go ahead and go all the way back to the beginning. So as far back as, well, well first of all, let me say for, for an American-centric audience and an American like myself, you know, Czechoslovakia is not always at the forefront of our knowledge for World War II. You know, for us, it's about the war in the Pacific oftentimes and D-Day and, you know, kind of the American contributions. So, you know, I have to admit, I learned quite a bit about the war in Czechoslovakia through your book rather than somewhere else initially. So it appears, though, that the Czech government and the people themselves were not at all surprised by the eventual aggression by Adolf Hitler. They had seen this coming for many years before he actually you know, invaded Poland and started seizing territories and all that. So can you talk about what things were like in Czechoslovakia prior to when the war began? What was the situation there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's Otto von Bismarck who said, who rules Bohemia rules Europe because of its central position in Europe. And obviously it was a key mm-hmm. part of the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. So in some ways, if you uh, look at the history of the Second World War, probably the Czechoslovakian vantage point on it is the truest in some regards, the truest perspective, because it really did begin with, you know, seriously, with the invasion of the Sudetenland, you know, the Czechoslovak defensive border areas. And it kind of ended, you know, so I think it was a it was a group of American soldiers who were, as you'll find out towards the end of the book, with my, which my grandfather was embedded with, who got furthest east of any Allied soldiers in the Second World War. So the story of Czechoslovakia is a pretty good arc through which to look at the whole history of the Second World War. Czechoslovakia was formed as as a noble project, really, at the end of the First World War from the remnants of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was forged of uh, Bohemia, the sort of ancient states of Bohemia, Moravia and and Slovakia as a model country. So it was formed on the ideals of the French Revolution, the American Declaration of Independence, founded by a man called Thomas Masaryk, who was a philosophy professor, an early proponent of feminism, took his American-born wife's name, so he was Thomas Garig Masaryk, and he really hmm. was trying to, 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 it was an experiment. Czechoslovakia was an experiment to create a modern democratic socialist country in the heart of Europe. And the young, um, gen- the first generation of Czechoslovaks, you know, my grandfather was born in 1914. So he was uh, four years old when Czechoslovakia was formed. They were very much, that was instilled into them. They believed in the mission statement. They believed in the the country. But they also knew that because of its geographic position, Czechoslovakia would have to fight um, through its early years, through its adolescence, to survive, and so this is this brings us really to, I guess, to the the things that the Spybury podcast is is um, 
interested in, which is that they realized as a small country that they needed really good intelligence to be able to understand the threats that were at their borders. And so it was in, I think, 19, about 19, uh, in the 1920s that Thomas Masaryk, the founder of Czechoslovakia, and his deputy, Edvard Benesch, recruited a, a man called uh, František Moravec, who is a really pivotal figure in the whole story of Czechoslovak military intelligence up until the end of the Second World War and, and, and slightly beyond. He ended up in exile in the US, actually, after the, after the war. His, his hmm. daughter, who I've made contact with, Anita Moravec, still lives somewhere around in Virginia, I think. But he basically formed really one of the first modern intelligence agencies in Czechoslovakia, in Prague, and started developing agents, running agents into Germany and the Soviet Union, and and really started to, to get key contacts within Germany, really with the purpose of finding out how German rearmament was going. Because through the 1920s and into the 1930s, the Czech, Czechoslovaks were pretty clear that their main threat was Germany and that when Germany started to rearm, it would, it, it would, you only have to look at the geography and the way that the Czech, Czechoslovakia juts into the side of, of Germany that, that they knew that at some point they would have to fight for their future. So they developed a, a crop of citizenry who were patriotic, believed in the country and were prepared to fight. They had the famous Škoda works, engineering works in Pilsen, just outside, just you know, the, another major Czech city in Bohemia, where they were producing armaments and uh, mechanized war machines, and really were readying themselves for what they saw as an inevitable fight with 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 Hitler. And as I say, their intelligence um, agency under František Moravec was seen as a really important part of that. So, this all begins, like you said a minute ago, with the annexation of the of the Sudetenlands and I'm familiar with that but can you can you talk briefly about what that was and how what the impact was on Czechoslovakia once that began that annexation began yeah and there's a lots of similarities with what's happening in the minute in in Ukraine to be honest so as with any country I mean you know Europe is the, the borders of the borders but in Europe are fairly arbitrary in many regards and mm-hmm. that you actually get a, a melding of cultures at the borders of countries much as you get a melding of Ukrainian and, and Russian cultures in the, the Donbass region and areas. So in Czechoslovakia, in order to form a country, they needed you, you need certain geographical features for your for your defense of your borders. And you also need to create a military defensible country. So in the borderlands of the newly formed state of Czechoslovakia between the First and Second World War, um, there was inevitably at its borders, there was a, there was a German speaking minority. Now, as Adolf Hitler came to power in the 1930s and Nazism was running rabid sort of on the move in Germany, that inevitably infected the the Czechoslovak border with Germany and the Sudetenlanders were encouraged by Hitler to escalate their grievances and make claims for wanting to be part of a a greater Germany. And so this, you know, with hindsight, we know that Hitler's policies were purely expansionist and his desire was to take over you know, most, if not all, of continental Europe. But at the time, you know, after the First World War, Britain, France, you know, nobody really wanted another war. And so in order to the famous Munich Agreement in 1938, without the Czechoslovaks even being present, Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, Edouard Daladier, the French Premier, and um, Hitler met along with Benito Mussolini, Mussolini, the Italian fascist leader. And they signed an agreement that they would that they that Czechoslovakia must give up its uh, key defensive borderlands in its Sudetenland region otherwise they would um withdraw their treaty obligations to fight with it if it was attacked 
So France had a treaty obligation with Czechoslovakia and Britain had an obligation to come in and fight on the side of France. But they basically withdrew those and forced Edvard Beneš, the Czech president, to give up the Sudetenland and then go into exile. So pretty tough for a democratically elected leader. Now, Beneš had a choice then, which was he had, I think, over 20 divisions of troops and he had you know, as I say, some pretty good armaments. The decision was, we, you know, even though they were outnumbered, do they fight? And do they hope then that the Allies feel compelled to come in? Uh, and that was a difficult decision for Benesh, but ultimately he decided that that would be a suicidal move to make. And therefore he went into exile. His head of military intelligence, František Morovets, had a an agent stayed in the country and, and tried to work for the new regime, which was increasingly under the sort of pressure from the Nazis. He had a really highly positioned agent in the German military who was codenamed A54. So A54 was a personal friend of Heinrich Himmler. It was from the Abwehr, the German military intelligence. And he was highly connected. So he knew all about Hitler's plans. And he just volunteered. Nobody quite knows why to this day, but he basically just gave himself, you know, volunteered to be an agent for for, for Morovets. And so Morovets had this really highly positioned member of the German um, military intelligence, the Abwehr, in that crucial period between 1938 onwards. And so when Hitler um, in 1939 decided to abandon the Munich Agreement and attack the rest of Bohemia and Moravia, so the western the western part of Czechoslovakia, uh, Morovets got a, a tip-off you know, in, in advance that that was going to happen. And he told his superiors in what was left of the Czechoslovak government, and they played it down. And so Morovets made quite a fateful decision, which was he decided that in the interest of his country, he had to go rogue. <laughs> and <laughs> so he contacted uh, Major Harold Gibson from British SIS intelligence and said he wanted to bring his, his agents and his intelligence files over to the UK because he knew that Hitler was about to invade the rest of the country. And he wanted to put those resources at, to the, you know, at the use of, the, of, of Britain and the anti-Nazi um, you know, coalition that was forming. Major Harold Gibson gave him a space on a plane, gave him 11 seats on a plane and said, you can bring your wife, your two daughters and your seven best agents. Morovets pondered this overnight and then thought, well, if I can't take, if my agents can't take their families, I will have no moral authority if I bring mine. And also every space on that plane is absolutely vital for the future of Czechoslovakia if we're going to avoid our country being enslaved by, you know, fascism. And so he told his wife simply to pack him a a T-shirt, a a shirt, sorry, a a shirt and a toothbrush for an overnight trip and just casually said that maybe his daughters shouldn't go to school the next day because he knew the next day was when the the Nazi tanks would roll in and basically left with 11, with 10 of his men. And that shows the measure. Unbelievable. That shows the measure of importance of this mission for the whole future of Europe and for the future of Czechoslovakia. And and Morovets knew that. And so the men arrived in, so exactly as predicted by A54, the the tanks rolled in and Czechoslovakia was occupied. One of the first places they went was Morovets' office, but he'd taken out most of his crucial files and burned the rest. So they, they didn't exactly get the bounty that they were looking for. And Morovets turned up in London and sent word to Benesh, who was in America at the time, but on his way back to the UK, that he wanted to put those resources at the disposal of, of Benesh, because he rightly assumed that Benesh, once, that as Hitler had invalidated the Munich Agreement, Benesh would see himself as once again as the rightful president. 
and would be seeking to reclaim his authority and fight for the um, freedom of Czechoslovakia. And so that's exactly what happened. Man, what an incredible story. They really gambled everything, especially after their allies abandoned them, essentially, at the, the Treaty of Munich, like you said. That's incredible stuff. Their well, and, country's uh, hanging by a thread. Moravets, at this point, Moravets had nothing in his hand. He had The mission was clear to him, which was encourage the allies to come into the war against Nazi Germany, find allies who were prepared to fight for nothing else than the complete defeat of Germany so that Czechoslovakia can be reinstalled to its pre-Munich borders. And so that, you know, that's quite a tall mission when you're not even the recognised president of the country. But the one thing that he had going for him at that time was A-54. So at this point, France was on the verge of, you know, it wouldn't be long before France would be out of the war and Britain would be on its own. And actually having that key link to that intelligence network in the heart of Europe was a massive advantage for Benesch. And he used it throughout the war to squeeze every little bit of political credibility and leverage he could to ultimately secure an independent Czechoslovakia. Hmm, Boy, those guys are really gambling everything. That's incredible stuff. Incredible, really. So that sets the stage for what is coming now. But what's going on, like if we take it back to your grandfather for a moment, what is his role in this? Is he already in the uh, Czech army at this point? I mean, what what happens to him when the German tanks roll on? I mean, my my grandfather was, what happened with him was when the... When the check, when the tanks rolled in, he was like many, like a lot of able-bodied young Czechoslovaks. He was basically sent on forced labour, so he was rounded up, and possibly because he spoke, he was a linguist by training, so he spoke. Well, I was aware he spoke six or seven languages fluently, and a couple more to get by, if you see what I mean. So he had mm-hmm. skills in that he could speak German and Czech. The Germans rounded him up, and many other men like him, and he was sent to. Kiel in northern Germany on the Danish border to basically on forced labor to build a naval barracks. And so that was a pretty horrific time for him. He was, uh, it's covered in the book, but he was starvation rations beaten. He was beaten and forced to do manual labor. Uh, he told me on one occasion he was beaten on the head with an iron bar. So pretty gruesome stuff. And then what happened was after Benesh arrived back in London, he and Jan Masaryk, who was the, his foreign minister, who was the son of Thomas Masaryk, the founder of modern Czechoslovakia, who I, I spoke about before, started broadcasting on the BBC World Service. And they said a plea, really, to say for able-bodied Czechs, young Czech men, to get themselves to France, because that's where the fight was. And they said, you know, if you want to fight, get yourselves over to France, you'll be able to form a Czechoslovak, oil under, uh, Czechoslovak army under French command, and you'll be able to fight for the freedom of Europe and for the freedom of your country. So Christmas Eve, 1939, my grandfather heeded this warning. He walked out of his labour camp in Kiel and somehow (laughs) found his way across Germany back to Barnov in in Czech Republic. God knows how, because this is a story he didn't... Well, the only thing he told me was that he escaped with two Jewish labourers and and that their contacts helped them get across. Because as bad as it was for him in the labour camp, it was even worse for the Jewish uh, uh, prisoners. But he somehow got his way back to Barnov for Christmas 1939. He found himself back in um, his hometown of of, of Barnov, Moravia. And then the decision was, how do we get to join the army in France? Now, his younger cousin, Josef, was a law student 
But as part of the Nazi sort of measures against Czechoslovakia, they'd closed the universities. So his younger cousin was also in his back in his hometown of Barnov. And together, the two men said, right, we're just going to have to leave and find our way to um, the French army. Now, the only way they could get to France at that time, because by this time, Poland had gone, had been um, attacked and overrun by by Germany. And therefore, that was not a viable route. That was the, the previous best route was out via Poland and then getting round across to France. But that was uh, that that route was no longer open. So they went on a roundabout route through Slovakia to Hungary, uh, Yugoslavia, down into the Balkans, across Turkey and Syria and to the Lebanon, where they joined the, uh, they joined the French army via the French Foreign Legion. So they set off in winter 1940 with just their winter coats some sandwiches and a bottle of plum brandy <laughs> and ended up in the Lebanon uh, where they signed papers to join the Czechoslovak army and were stationed with the French Foreign Legion. Wow. What a story. And we're just getting started here. It's yeah, incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, so from the, so obviously the battle was, the fight was in France. This was when Germany was looking to attack through its blitzkrieg measures through the Low Countries and, and, and Northern France. So they found that they then were transported by ship across to the south of France, a port Sete, where the, Czech, the Czechoslovak soldiers, there was about, I think, in, all in all, about 5,000 Czechoslovak men found their way to France to fight. And they were put into two separate regiments. And were, it was there that my grandfather, because of his language skills, was selected for signals training, which was a pretty fateful decision for everything that would come later. So he was, he was, he, he passed out top of his class under French training in wireless and telegraphy and Morse code skills. And he was brought, so he, the Czechoslovak army was brought up to northern France near Paris, but actually after um, the evacuation at Dunkirk. So pretty much when the French forces were already in retreat, they were brought up to northern France to fight. They were not well equipped. They had First World War rifles, wooden clogs, and old old First World War uniforms. And there was a little, certain amount of sentiment in the French army that the Czechoslovaks were partly responsible for this new war, and that was very much felt hmm. by them. But they fought well, and in fact, only retreated. Their, so throughout the whole of their um, um, attempts to fight in France, their, their lines were never uh, penetrated, and they only ever retreated if they once they were at, when they were requested to by the French command or when the French forces had collapsed around them and they were in danger of being encircled. Mm -hmm. And what this meant was that they basically, having been brought up to Paris, they actually had to do a forced march all the way back to south of France where they started. You know, there's stories about this in the book where my grandfather said he marched asleep, fully asleep. They marched. Uh, they were, their lives were under threat. And they knew that if the French signed an armistice, which is what eventually happened, and they were handed over to the Germans, they would be seen as traitors because they were seen as subjects of the Third Reich. And so they were under threat of capital punishment. So the men marched all the way back to the south of France. They were forcibly disarmed at one point, I think after the armistice had been signed. And then they found their way onto boats and went through the Mediterranean, up through the Irish Sea into to Liverpool, where they um, disembarked in the UK in, in a pretty sorry state, I can tell you, <laughs> at a pretty low ebb. I can imagine. I mean, what a terrible and difficult journey. He's been in the labor camp. He trekked all the way across Europe, north to south, in retreat through France, treated poorly by the allies in France after the country's been abandoned. So I, I can totally see how he would be at, or morale would be low at I that mean, time. But, but 
Mor- know, they didn't stop, did they? Well, morale wasn't. I mean, one of the things that really did a couple of things perked them up. I think one of them was as they as they were sailing through the Mediterranean, they went past Gibraltar at the south of um, Spain, and they saw the naval task force that Churchill had assembled to capture the French Navy and stop it falling into German hands, which for men from a landlocked country to see it, the full force of the British Navy at the time, the Arc Ro- aircraft Arc Royal, the battle cruiser, the Hood, you know, it kind of made them realise that actually things maybe weren't over yet. Hmm. And then they found their way up to Liverpool where actually they were greeted, you know, well, because of course the Brit- Britain was looking for allies and the, the British populace was very pleased to see them there as, as and gave them a really warm welcome, which was much um, appreciated. So they were initially put into tents in uh, Cheshire in the northwest of England before they were moved to permanent barracks in a place called Leamington Spa, which is in the Midlands of England. And that was their, their base, the, the, the base of the Czech forces for most of the war. Now, it was exactly this time, soon after they were there in sort of 1940 to 41, they sort of licked their wounds and started building a colonel of a um, Czechoslovak army on British soil because they knew the intent was to go and uh, reclaim their country. But but Czechoslovakia was still, intelligence was still key and they knew that and Benesh and Frantisek Moravec were still of a mind that they needed to demonstrate value to the Allies as soon as possible. And so... Winston Churchill in 1941 set up the Special Operations Executive, famously, which was the you know the first real sort of special forces, uh, as it would be called today, in international armies. He set up the Special Operations Executive with its mission to set Europe ablaze and to parachute operatives into their home nation for covert missions. And so his deputy was a man called Emil Strankmuller. They sent him to Leamington in April 1941 to recruit a handful of men to be trained for in the vanguard of, of parachute missions to be sent back into Czechoslovakia. Uh, and they recruited, um, as I say, a couple of dozen men, including a man called Josef Gabčić, who famously was one of the eventual assassins of Reinhard Heydrich, and also my grandfather. And it's in the book, the picture of his dinner invite for dinner with Edvard Benesch in May 1941 was at the very outbreak of special operation, you know, one of those very first recruits for special operations to go back to Czechoslovakia. Right. That must have been some kind of feeling after everything he had been through to be sitting there with the president in exile, Benish, right there at a dinner. Absolutely. But it also showed the, I won't say desperation, but, you know, Benish's need at that time was for capable men who could be sent back on these, you know, what 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 time would show were virtually suicidal missions back to the home country. Oh, right. Right. So was your grandfather, was he selected by SOE? Was he recruited or did he vol- did, you know, answer a call for volunteers or, or what exactly? He was answered. So Emil Strankmuller came to the camp at Leamington. They had reports on the men from the commanding officers, so candidates that they felt were um, viable. And they interviewed the men and asked them whether they wished to volunteer. And, and, and every single one, I don't think anybody said no. <laughs> All of the men said yes. Wow, amazing stuff, Evan. I, I don't know if they realized the danger that they would be in, but we we know now with hindsight just how incredibly dangerous all of this would be well, I, for them. So I, I think they did, but they they also knew that they had families and you know their country back home, and that if if they couldn't get their country back and free their family members from, you know, they knew exactly what Nazism was all about, perhaps more than anybody else at that time. So they were quite willing to to um, sacrifice their lives because if nobody did that, then they really wouldn't have any lives to return to. Right, right. Very good point. Yeah, there's no reason not to volunteer when you look at it that way. 
So was your grandfather's role, was he trained immediately as a commando or did he play some other role with SOE? So what happened was he was, as I say, he was one of the initial ones that was picked, but because wireless and telegraphy skills were so important because communications was what this was all about, he was initially kept behind to train radio operators for parachute missions. So because he was one of the best, if not the best radio operators, he was kept to train the radio operators for the first flurry of missions that happened. But his cousin, who he, his cousin, younger cousin, who he'd travelled with, was recruited for a, one of that the first batch of parachute missions to go into Czechoslovakia in 1942. Right, his cousin ended up going before he went. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So these these missions. I mean, you mentioned the risk, but as I read through, because you give a really good breakdown of so many of these missions with the the code names and the people involved and what they did, and it, it's just stunning to me how incredibly difficult i mean most of these guys went to their deaths like the majority went to their deaths on these missions didn't they yes yeah i mean i think of about in the period between 1941 and 1942 i think i can't remember top something like 20 something men were were dropped all of them ended up dying except for two of those turned to the gestapo and two others lost their equipment on dropping and went to ground and went and ended up in the mountains with the partisans. So they were the four that survived. All of the other men who were actively involved in missions and didn't turn to the Nazis ended up ultimately dying in pretty in pretty short order. Yeah, it was terrible. Several of the, I think it was this group, several of these guys took their their suicide pills at the moment of capture, basically, when they knew the situation was hopeless, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because they knew that they, you know, that, that, once they were captured by the Nazis, there was no way they were ever going to get out again. And that also they knew that the, you know, the information that they had was was so valuable that the Gestapo and the Nazi regime would do every, anything they could to get the information out of them. So, you know, if you look at it from that right. regard, again, it's a horrible choice, but <laughs> it's, it's the most logical one. Oh, yeah. There was, there was one story, and I, his name escapes me at the moment, but one of the guys, he swallowed the pill hole. He didn't bite down on it, right? He swallowed it. Can you talk a, a little bit about what happened to that guy? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was a mission. So famously, the first, some of the early missions was that one of them was the the famous assassination of Reinhard Heydrich conducted by Josef Gabczyk and, and Jan Kubisch, uh, subject of, of many films. So the men were parachuted in and it was the most high ranking, the most high profile, highest ranking Nazi assassinated during the Second World War. My grandfather's cousin was sent in at the same time as part of a mission called Operation Bioscope which was a sabotage mission. So the famous story there is that seven of the parachutists, in the aftermath of the Heydrich assassination, seven parachutists found themselves in the church of uh, St. Cyril and and Methodius, which is a church in Prague, where they fought 800 SS troops for six hours uh, before um, shooting themselves in the head with their final um, bullets after they were betrayed by one of their members. So that's the famous, that's the really famous story. But as you say, there are dozens of other missions that happened during the Second World War. The, the mission that you're talking about is a mission. I just have to remind myself of the name because, as you say, there are so many. It was Antimony. It was a mission called Antimony. So basically, what happened was in the aftermath of the Heydrich assassination, the Germ- the Nazi regime and the, the protectorate police in in Bohemia Moravia went into overdrive, and really, it was martial law. There was mass executions, and they really rooted out. And managed to to and, and destroy what was what was the home resistance network. So the home resistance network was partly ex-members of the of the Czechoslovak army, but also you know patriotic citizens and then parachutists who'd been parachuted in. But pretty much the whole thing got wiped out in 
the latter half of 1942 because of the uh, harshness of the reprisals. But one of the last wireless messages which was sent back to the UK, and it was sent back to a place called the VRU, which was the UK Wireless and Telegraphy Centre, which was in contact with all the agents. And that was where my grandfather was working at the time. So he moved from training duties to actually working as a member of the, you know, in 24-hour contact with the agents on the ground in, in Prague. One of the last messages they got back in the aftermath of the Heydrich assassination was from a wireless operator who basically the Germans wiped out an entire village, uh, committed genocide on a village called Lezaki. And one of the last messages they got back was from a radio operator in that area who sent back a message saying, Lezaki is leveled, I'm the only one left. And so they had this possibility that this radio operator was still alive. And so they sent a mission called Operation Antimony in October 1942, so about four or five months after the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. And that was comprised of a man called Frantisek Zavor, Stanislav Srazel, and the radio operator, who you're talking about, is a man called Lubomir Jazinek. So the, the, the mission was dropped, and they managed to get in touch with local um, resistance. And they were holed up with them in a, in a safe house when basically they, the Gestapo uncovered where they were. And so they surrounded the house. Hundreds of uh, Gestapo agents surrounded the house and demanded that these agents give themselves up. And they said, if you don't, we'll kill everybody, in, everybody, including the, you know, the local partisans, resistance members who you're with. And so these three agents debated and said, well, okay, we'll hand ourselves in. And they marched out, whistling the Czech national anthem, Czechoslovak national anthem. And they marched out to the Gestapo. And at the last moment, they all swallowed their, or tried to swallow their cyanide um, tablets. Now, the leaders of Orca was successful and managed to swallow his cyanide tablet. Stanislav Srazel, who was one of the other men, failed to, and he was taken into captivity and captured and used as a decoy for the rest of the war. Lubomir Jazinek swallowed his hole in the, in the melee because the agents were trying to stop him from swallowing his tablet. He swallowed it whole, so they took him to a local doctor's to try and pump his stomach. And famously, uh, they didn't manage it, so he asked the um, Gestapo for a cigarette waiting for his stomach acids to, to, to you know, do their work. He, 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 took a, he, he took a cigarette and, from the Gestapo and wandered around the doctor's surgery, apparently admiring the paintings on the wall before he eventually collapsed <laughs> to his death. Uh, so, yeah. so as you say, absolutely amazing stories. You know, and, and not, you know, the, the Operation Anthropoid is the famous one about, because of obviously the political significance, but there were many, many missions of, uh, and all of them, as you say, were equally tragic and important. Well, yeah, it's it's so hard for me to put myself in his shoes and imagine what was going through his head, you know, just smoking a cigarette. He's surrounded by his enemies. There's no hope of getting away. And he knows that the clock is ticking down on the last few minutes of his life. So he's just trying to, like you said, like take in the paintings on the walls and enjoy the cigarette and just wait for that pill to kick in. Well, I think Finally, it's, it's, it's really incredible. defiance and rubbing salt in the wound. of There was a, a thing about being defiant and also about leaving behind some stories for the because of Czechoslovakia because they weren't allowed to fight. The, these these stories and these narratives and these shows of defiance took on an extra significance because of the futility of their situation. So anything that was seen as resistance was, you know, like famously, there was the one of the Czech underground agents, uh, underground organizations which supported the resistance was called Defense of the Nation. And that was run by former members of the Czechoslovak uh, military. And it was Joseph Billy who was e- executed. I think in the aftermath of the Heydrich assassination, they wanted to make a real show of his of his um, execution. You know, took him out to the firing squad. He refused a blindfold. 
He said, have you got any last words? And he said, long live Czechoslovakia. Uh, now shoot, you German dogs. <laughs> so they knew that their lives were forfeit and that they, would, they were not going to go out without a show of defiance. It's incredible stuff. Those guys had a lot of grit, that's for certain. <laughs> yeah. Amazing stuff. Before we go on, I want to let all of you know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. So, George, I know that the book is called Foursquare, of course, and that's really about your grandfather's operation, and that's what you were trying to get to the heart of the whole time. So can you explain a little bit about what you learned about Foursquare after so many years of research and interviews? Yeah, yeah, and it was hard. It was really hard because these the, all these things we've been talking about so far are well documented and well understood because of the high profile nature of Operation Anthropoid, and because, and also because a lot of the men died, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. you know there was no need to keep their stories secret. But when you get to basically what had to happen after 1942 and after the Hydric assassination, th- there was a slow rebuilding of um, Czechoslovak intelligence because they still needed. They still needed to, you know, Benesh Moravec still needed a strong network on the ground, because as always, as was always the case with SOE-sponsored operations, the idea was to have influence on the ground to be able to support the, an uprising and to engage partisans when finally the retaking of Europe came. And so, in 1943, 1944, there were a succession of missions to try and re-establish intelligence networks, not just in and around Prague, but across the whole of Czechoslovakia. And so the book documents these and some of the politics that was going on at the time. And of course, as you go through the war, what you also see is is a kind of, what's the word, a lessening of the influence of the United Kingdom and a strengthening of the Soviet Union and the USA. So really, as you get mm-hmm. towards the end of the Second World War, you start to see the birth, the early days of the of the Cold War. Now, mm-hmm. my grand- I, I first heard the name Foursquare from my grandmother who uh, knew a little bit about the mission and knew about its name, but, but not for my grandfather. But when I asked my grandfather about, about his mission, all he said to me was, um, it was a, the mission was to assassinate German section leaders. So his mission was, the date of his mission was, was May, May 1945, which is obviously right at the end of the Second World War. And his mission, as he, as he stated it to me was, when I sort of pinned him down on it, was that it was to assert, assassinate German section leaders to instigate an uprising before the Red Army came in. Because at this point, Czechoslovakia had been deemed to be in the Soviet sphere of influence. And yet Benesh didn't want to be part of the Soviet Union. He wanted Czechoslovakia to be an independent democratic country, as was always the mission statement. And so 
he was keen to retain American influence and involvement in the country. And so it was interesting because my grandfather told me in no uncertain terms that that was the mission, that it was a success. But when the mission files were finally, the SOE, the British intelligence files on Operation Foursquare were finally declassified in the early 2000s, it said that the mission was cancelled at the last moment and didn't go ahead. And so really, that's the kind of dilemma at the heart of the book. You know, why did my grandfather tell me a mission that was cancelled actually went ahead? And so as I looked into it, there were several missions that were undertaken at that time, and all of them apparently cancelled at the last moment, but all with similar missions and all basically about trying to get a degree of Czechoslovak control of the western part of the country and the seat of government before the Red Army came in and, and exerted too much influence. And, and those missions were conducted not with the British SOE, but with the American OSS. So actually, mm. what I got... To, uh, now, remember, of course, at the time, there were political agreements at the highest level between Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt, and latterly uh, Truman, about where the Americans should and shouldn't have influence. And they were supposed to stop at the border of... They were supposed to stop at the border of Czechoslovakia. Now, what actually happened was... The Americans, because as the Germans were withdrawing, the American army went to Pilsen on exactly the day that my grandfather's mission was conducted. On the 5th of May, 1945, his dropping point was Pilsen. And then what happened was the, the Soviets protested and said, because the Americans wanted to go all the way to Prague, but the Soviet Union protested and the Americans stopped at Pilsen. And so what I managed to piece together was that my grandfather's, if I believe my grandfather, and he never lied about anything in his life, and certainly not about something so important at such a sort of late period in his life, and what I managed to get to was that basically there was a flurry of missions conducted at the end of the war, not with heavy British involvement, although the special operations executive knew a little bit about it, but with the direct support of the OSS. And basically, my grandfather, and uh, there were several missions at the time, and they were all led. The commanding officer on the ground was a man called Jaromir Nachansky, who is recognized to have been one of the key leaders of the Prague uprising. And so basically, there were a flurry of missions that were conducted, which did instigate. My grandfather's was in Pilsen. And so if I believe what he said, he, he instigated the Pilsen uprising. Others instigated an uprising and supported the uprising in Prague. But because that was the Soviet Union were... Um, so against that happening, because that was contrary to agreements at the highest level, they were never allowed to admit that those missions actually happened. Wow. The missions officially were expunged from the records because all of those who were involved with them, their lives were, were at risk. And, and also, if Benesh was seen to have sponsored them, at this point, Benesh was embedded with the Red Army coming in from the east. But if he was to admit that he sponsored these arguments, then his life would be forfeit as well. Now... This all came full circle in that uh, my grandfather was working uh, in the foreign office. So after the war, uh, my grandfather was, was working for the, Czech, the, the, che the Czechoslovak government in that period between 1945 and 1948, where it did seem as if there might be some future for Czechoslovakia as a democratic country. But of course, there was then the, the, the communist subversion of Czechoslovakia, which happened and culminating in February 1948. So my grandfather, I think gradually the, the communists got wind of what he and other men like him had done. He was posted pretty early on about 19, late 1945. He was moved to the US occupied quarters of Berlin to work for the sort of uh, the government uh, away from Prague, because that was probably seen as the safest place for him. 
and he was working, but he was working for Jan Masaryk, the foreign office, office uh, foreign minister, Benesh's foreign minister. So in those periods between 45 and 48, um, Benesh was gradually had to make common cause with the communists and with the Soviet Union, was gradually put under house arrest and uh, neutralized as a political force. Jan Masaryk in 1948 famously was, there were claims at the time that it was suicide, but clearly it wasn't. He was thrown from the third window of the Czechoslovak foreign office murdered by communist agents. Oh, my gosh. And just at exactly that time, my grandfather was recalled from from Berlin to work at the same building. That wasn't a particularly attractive offer. And some friendly agents came to see him in Berlin and tipped him off that if he was to return to Prague, he would be on a capital charge. And so he um, arranged for... When the Berlin airlift was on, and my, my mother was born in Berlin in 1947... She was taken back. My grandfather arranged for a flight for my English grandmother and my mum to fly back to England. And then when he knew they got there, he arranged a flight for himself and he was in exile for the rest of his life. Now, the other men who were involved in those parachute missions, including um, Jeremy Nachansky, were persecuted or ex- executed. So Nachansky himself was put on trial in 1950 on charges of collaborating with the Americans and was hanged in, 19, in 1950. And then, and then there were the famous Slansky trials in '52, where a lot of the Czech communist government were purged um, by the Soviet Union. So there was this gradual waves of subversion that came, and all of those men that had fought so hard throughout, you know, for freedom uh, and independence against the Nazis, had, had basically were ended up having to to fight for the same against the communists, and ultimately, certainly in the short term, losing. Man, that's, that is terrible. My gosh, what a tremendous loss for all of those people, grandfather included. So correct me if I'm wrong here, George, but from the time that he was was left in 1939 to to go to the forced labor camp, I mean, he spent almost none of the rest of his life in Czechoslovakia, right? Like what, a few days or a few weeks Um, at most? Would that be correct? Well, if I believe him, he spent a few days in in May 1945. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But then he he returned to England, uh, but then he went back to Prague for probably probably three or four months. He was based in the foreign office in 45. He then was transferred to Yugoslavia, then subsequently to Berlin. When he returned to England... um, he had to re, you know, re, to, to to rebuild and start everything. But he was still getting, even into the 1950s, he was getting calls in the middle of the night from persons unknown, threatening him and his our family, and letting it be known that if he ever, you know, not to even think about coming back to Czechoslovakia and certainly not to be conspiring against the um, communist government. So they would get late night phone calls and and threats well into the 1950s. He's certainly exactly the type of guy they do not want coming back <laughs> no. to Czechoslovakia with his skill set. So he returned, I believe he went back for a visit in the 1960s, just before, um, so when the reforms came. But then subsequently the communists came in again, probably, I think he, I think it was 68, he went, August 68. And I think it was only weeks after he left from a visit to see his family in Barnov that the tanks came in again. But he did manage to go back at the end of his life. So when... Václav Havel came in and there was the sort of Velvet Revolution. He was, he and a lot of men like him were rehabilitated, which I think he thought was quite funny, the idea that he was rehabilitated, not the country. um, (laughs) Right. But uh, he was given a rank of Lieutenant Colonel, I believe, in the end, and and even a small pension, which he thought was quite funny. Some of the prized possessions I've got are, I think it was 89 and 1990. I think it was 1990 when Václav Havel, on the anniversary of the 
um, deaths of the parachutists at the Church of St. Cyril and Methodius greeted a number of the remaining parachutists who were still alive. So some of his closest friends, a man called Chestermere Schikula, another man called Jaramir Klemesh, they're all radio operators like him who'd been part of the training team and subsequently had gone on missions you know, in the, at the end of the war. My granddad couldn't go because of ill health, but all of those guys went to meet Václav Havel and they sent him a postcard of remembrance, you know, mm. which is one of the prized possessions. I've got signed by all of the all of the parachutists from that time. So in the oh, end, man. you know, the although it took a long, hell of a long time, I think in the end, the country, you know, obviously the country, you know, Czech, Czech, now Czech Republic and Slovakia are democratic countries. They are free, independent countries. And actually, I think my granddad did get a lot of satisfaction from that and feel that ultimately, even though it took a long time, uh, did get a degree of satisfaction from the ultimate outcome. You know, he did, oh, live, I bet he did. He did live to see the country and, and, and did go back several times, actually, to see his family in these later years. That's wonderful. Yeah, what a what a fitting into that story. But he, he lived a heck of a life, that's for certain. <laughs> really left his mark on the world. Well, that's fantastic, George. The book, everyone, if you're listening, is called Foursquare. The Last Parachutist. It's a wonderful read. It's available on Amazon and elsewhere, I'm sure. Really encourage you to pick it up because we have certainly not covered everything in the book today, but it's a fantastic read. And I really learned a lot about Czechoslovakia's role in World War II. A lot of stuff I was not aware of until I read the book. So I really encourage you to pick it up. And George, are you working on any more history books now? Anything else in the future for you now that you've written this story? Well, you know, I guess they say everyone's got one book in them. <laughs> this is certainly <laughs> right. a book that, I mean, I think I, I blog regularly on, on transport safety and things to do with work. And I do occasionally, I, I probably will at some point, but at the moment, it's been quite a lot of work promoting this one. Actually, I didn't realize how hard it was to actually uh, promote a book once you've written it. So that's taken up quite a lot of my time. <laughs> I should say the thing that other thing that people might find interesting, and I've certainly occurred to me is the strong parallels with Ukraine. There's so much of this that that is that's resonating at the moment, and of course, actually, Subcarpathian Ukraine was, you know, the very western part of it was actually a part of Czechoslovakia, um, and was a pit that the yeah. Soviet Union is covered in the book actually subverted and stole before the, they stole the rest of Czechoslovakia. So there's actually a lot there's a lot in this book which is useful reference for getting your head around the challenges the world's got at the moment as well. Oh, certainly, yeah, history tends to repeat itself. There's no doubt about that. So, George, is there anywhere that people can connect with you right now? Do you have a website or anything like that if they want to uh, contact you directly or learn more or follow you on social media, for example? Yeah, there's a there's a Twitter account, which is at Last Parachutist and set the same on Instagram at, at Last Parachutist. And there's a Facebook page as well, actually, um, Last Parachutist, where I, I kind of do posts regularly on this on this subject. And there's a, as I say, I've got engaged with a fairly active a community of people there's a lot of people who are interested in this this particular part of history and we've got some sort of active discussions um going on i think we're currently potentially looking at a czech language publication in the book as well which is i think oh great hugely um valuable i think because in some regards i think or george orwell again history is written by the winners and i think actually it's <laughs> oddly taken somebody from outside czechoslovakia to have an outside perspective and a motivation for um looking at this history and writing it all down in this way. oh yeah that's that's very interesting. Yeah, good point. Interesting. Well, thank you so much, George. This has been really enlightening. I really appreciate you coming on today. Good luck with the book sales. Thank you for sharing the story with us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Justin. It's been a, been a pleasure. <clears throat> if you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps or connect with me on Patreon. 
my patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes free PDF copies of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage, and Covert Arms, Weapons from the World of Spycraft and Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Jack T. and William M. With your support, I've been able to continue funding my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around, because there's lots more to come. Thanks for listening to this program brought to you by Daydreamer Network. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. Your feedback allows us to rank on the best new shows list and continue to grow our podcasts in order to bring more unique and talented storytellers to the network. To check out our shows, including programs about relationships, sports, business, nutrition, leisure, and more, head to www.daydreamernetwork.com. We look forward to seeing you back next week for another great episode. Have a wonderful day.